Well, welcome Genesis House. Let's stand and read uh, John 16, 16. And we'll end at verse 22. So we're starting at verse 16. This is uh, Jesus speaking. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and then you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this thing that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and they said to him, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me? And again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, and she has a pain, when she has pain, because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Let's pray. Lord, um, your word here is very impactful and powerful. We may not see it as of yet, but once we dive in, we're going to see how much the cross means to, to us as believers and what you did for us. And your word is somewhat repetitive in the beginning. But I hope, Lord, that if it seems confusing, that we can make it clear through your Holy Spirit as he teaches us and brings us into truth. I pray that for everyone here, including myself. And we look forward to our time centered around learning about you and your love for us. In Christ's name, amen. If you remember from last week's sermon, Jesus had just promised the disciples that in his absence, they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, he was going to have two distinct roles in their lives. The first one, if you remember, was that he would come as a prosecutor. Um, he would come to convict the world of sin and their need for him. And he was, going to use, he was going to do that through the mouths of the disciples, right? As they spoke the message of the gospel, that the Spirit would use that message of truth and then use it to convict the world concerning their sin. The second role within the disciples' lives was that the Holy Spirit was to be their guide. As the disciples walked through life and they faced circumstances, as they were trying to learn the implications and applications of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit was to bring to remembrance all the commandments of Jesus' teachings. And in that way, he was going to guide them into truth. So the same is for us, too. When we, the Holy Spirit acts in our lives as a prosecutor. When we speak truth, he convicts the people listening of their need for him. And also, when we walk through life uh, trying to figure out how to make decisions, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance the teachings of Jesus so that we understand how to live as Christians. So Jesus made it clear that the Holy Spirit was going to have a powerful role in these men's lives. At the same time, none of these promises were going to come true unless he left. He had to depart in order for the Spirit to come. And then the Spirit would act as, as, as if he had acted. He had acted as an external teacher. The Spirit was now going to act as an internal teacher. But it was this news that Jesus was going to leave and depart from them and going to die shortly that left the disciples crushed in their spirit. Remember verse 6. He said there that he recognized, he says that they were filled with sorrow. They were filled with sorrow right to the, the deep, uh, deep heart just because of the, the nature of that Jesus was going to leave them. So from the point of view of the disciples, this was going to be the end of all communication with Jesus. 
is going to be the end of the relationship with Jesus. It was going to be the end of the messianic hopes they had for Jesus. And it was going to be the end of their personal ministry with Jesus. But Jesus knew this was not the end. It was just the beginning, and there was hope. And they could be assured that they would see him once again. And we picked this up from verse 16. He says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and then you will see me. When Jesus uh, first refers to the first little while, like in the first section, he says, uh, yeah, he says here, a little while, and you will no longer see me. Of course, he was referring to the time leading up to the crucifixion. So from the time he declared that at the night of the Last Supper, to the crucifixion was literally hours away. So the first little while he's referring to was just a few hours. And it was after his death that it was true that they would no longer see him. But what the disciples were not counting on was the resurrection of Jesus. Never in their wildest dreams would he return from the dead. And that's the reference to the second little while that Jesus is speaking about. Right? He says, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now this time from the resurrection to his ascension into heaven was 40 days. So the disciples were going to see Jesus over a period of 40 days in the second little while time frame. So while the first reference was just a few hours, the second reference of a little while was just was 40 days off and on. And we see that right at the beginning of the, uh, the first day of resurrection. Mary, the two Marys were at the tomb. Jesus appears. And then he ends up with um, appearing to Peter and the rest of the disciples in the upper room. And then to Thomas. And then he makes multiple appearances over 40 days. So this timeline of his, of his death and resurrection was clear to Jesus. But to the disciples, it was total confusion. We picked this up in 17 and 18. Some of his disciples said to one another, Well, what is this thing he's telling us a little while and you will no longer see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this thing that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Again, easy for us to understand this clearly because we have the whole picture. Like we now looking back at this understand exactly what's going on. But if you put yourselves in the disciples' shoes and think from a Jewish perspective, think from a Jewish perspective about the belief about the Messiah, you can see why they're confused. See, they believe this when the Messiah showed up, and they believed Jesus to be the Messiah, that he would come as a man, anointed by God to be king over Israel. He was going to come and set up a kingdom and be their king. And he's going to free them from Roman oppression. That was their belief. But here's the key with all this. It was a permanent messianic rule. He was going to be permanently their king. And this was going to be a permanent messianic kingdom that was never going to be ever taken away from them. Now we know from scripture, this all becomes true in the, in the millennial kingdom. Like in the thousand year reign. But this is not for this time. But they believe that this is a permanent kingdom with a permanent king. You can see now why, with this permanence belief in their head, that Jesus was talk about a little while and I'll be gone, and a little while I'll be back, they were so confused. You see, if, if he had indeed been sent by God as the Messiah, and his rule was to be one of permanence, why then, in a little while, would he need to go back to the Father? That makes no sense. That's, the, that's not a permanent uh, rule. That's an impermanent rule. At the same time, if he'd come as the Messiah and not plan to set up the kingdom... Why in a little while then would he bother returning again from the Father? This made no sense either. So you can feel for the disciples that they're not dumb men. 
They just, in the context, have an understanding, a preconceived idea of what it means to be Messiah, and they just don't understand this at the time. And again, that's why it's so awesome in Acts. Like, 50 days later, you see them with full clarity of what the Messiahship and Jesus' purpose for coming was to be. So Jesus saw their confusion, and so he began to answer them in verse 19 and 20. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will no longer see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. I love Jesus' response here. Notice it's not a spirit of criticism for the lack of understanding. Right? He could have said, oh, you bunch of morons, you don't get it, you're so slow. But his response is not like that. His response is one of providing them with hope. It was a, a response that sought to meet their deepest emotional needs at the time and give them a, a word of encouragement in their time of despair. Yes, it was going to hurt to lose Jesus. It was going to be a, a great source of anguish for them. But this same event, which was the cross, that was going to be their greatest source of pain and sorrow, was actually going to become their greatest source of joy. We see that again in verse 20, right? He says, truly, truly, I say to you that the, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, but you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Verse 22, the same thing. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. It's important we notice that Jesus starts off verse 20 with truly, truly. Whenever Jesus wants to drive home a point in Scripture, whenever you're reading that and you see truly, truly, you know that he's trying to get a, a strong point across that is of great significance or importance. Truly, truly uh, in Hebrew is like saying amen, amen. So when you say grace and, you, and you, you're at the table and you say grace for your meal and you say amen at the end of it, or we pray after in church and we say amen, we're saying truly, truly. What we just said, Lord, is of great significance, at least in our heads it is, <laughs> right? And we want God to take note of it. And Jesus is saying, truly, truly. So boys, listen up. I've got something of great importance to say to you. But here's the key he wanted them to understand, which is of great importance. He wanted them to see the importance of how the cross and his death was going to impact their lives. Right? It was the importance of how the cross was going to impact their lives. He was saying to them, in the short term, it's going to leave you totally dismayed. It's going to leave you with total sorrow. And it's going to seem like you've been defeated, and I've been defeated. And it's not going to help either that your enemies are going to rejoice over this. They're going to think that they've triumphed over me, and they've triumphed over you and your, and your hopes of the Messiah. They, they're going to see it as bringing justice to a criminal, and you're going to have a deep time of anguish and pain in the short term. But in the long term, this is not going to be the case for you. Just in a few days, the tables are going to be turned. Your dismay over the cross is going to turn into triumph and joy. And the enemies which rejoiced over you and rejoiced over me in the short term and the long term are actually going to be the one dismayed and anguished. You see, once the disciples understood the implications of Jesus' death and the resurrection, the same event that marked a crushing defeat for the disciples would become now a source of victory. So this was only temporary, and they were to understand that in relation to the joy that was to come, that this was just something they could bear now, and this was his way of giving them hope and encouragement. And he uses 
the illustration of a woman giving birth to drive home his point. Listen up, Tori. Verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. <laughs> You're telling me how much joy you have. Tell me how much joy you have, yeah. But I remember when Denise gave birth to all three of our boys, and, uh, and uh, especially our first one, because Jackson was the hardest of all her deliveries, and to this day has still been the hardest one for her to raise. <laughs> so um, I remember though, when, she, when, when um, we went to the High River Hospital for his birth, uh, after Janice's uh, contraction started, uh, we, we drove into the hospital and the doctor gave her an initial checkup. And um, the, we were there probably around two or three in the morning at the first checkup. And we, we, the doctor gave us good news. He said, yeah, she's like pretty well dilated. Like she's, she's uh, for those of you who don't know what that means, you can ask Denise after. <laughs> but she was dilated. And, uh, <laughs> see, I had learned, I put my foot in my mouth so many times up here, I'm not gonna even go there. <laughs> but she's, uh, she's, oh, she's far too late. She's far along dilated. And we, I don't know how many centimeters you have to be for the baby to be like, obviously in, for the four ten. Like 30. <laughs> <laughs> Ten will do it. Okay, so she was like a good percentage along, so we were thinking at two or three in the morning, awesome. And the doctor gave us encouraging news, and we thought, okay, awesome. Jackson's gonna be born probably around five or maybe five thirty, six thirty in the morning, based on how far along she was. So we had this great hope that Jackson was gonna be born a bit quick. And so as time went on, every half hour or so, the pain got worse and the contractions got stronger, and that's to be expected. And I remember thinking, okay, and hurt you that this the baby's going to come any any minute now, and uh, he comes in and checks her around five thirty six in the morning again when we thought he was to be born, and he basically gave her the same news that she was dilated to the same degree she was at two or three in the morning, and that's when sort of like everything changed because Denise was already going through significantly more pain, and yet the baby hadn't been born yet. And that's when my prayer life changed. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is where it took courage for me to say this, but I'm like, God, if there's any way for me to share the pain with my wife, you can give me some now. But I knew in the deepest, he's not going to do that because that's the, unfortunately the result of the curse from Genesis 3. He told that Eve, the pain is going to be on you for, for sinning against me, and this is what it is for the curse to be, to be in full effect. So nevertheless, I still prayed for that to occur, and it never did. But Janice also was a tough cookie because she opted out of epidurals and any pain medication because she did some research, and she decided that for the safety of the children, she thought it was the best for that to occur. And I know it's contradicting research, whether it's safe or not, and whatever. but Janice, in her own conscience, wanted to go au natural. So she did. And so each hour went by, and no baby, no baby, more pain, more pain, more no baby, making only faces that a mother could love. And... Denise is before, you know, was just sort of struggling through this and I'm in sorrow for her as well and she's in a lot of pain and no doubt everything was changing for her as these contractions got stronger. But eventually the baby was born eight hours later at 1.30 in the afternoon. So from the first time of contraction, which was around 11 o'clock at night, to the baby being born at 1.30 is 14 and a half hours. So 14 and a half hours of, of, of labor. And here's the thing, every, every, through that 14 and a half hours, her anguish and sorrow got greater and greater and greater and greater. But after Jackson was born, there, we never thought of or talked about the pain she went through ever again. 
I mean, she had to, you know, uh, you know, she went through this, but when she held the baby and she was admiring all his unique features and whatnot, she was, had a smile on her face from ear to ear, and so did I. Again, this is what, was, this is what Jesus was talking about. There's, no, there's tons of anguish for a short period of time, but once the baby is born, you're fully, fully in full joy mode because, and rejoicing over the birth of this kid. And like the disciples, they were going to go through a short-term period of Jesus' death, but in the big picture, in the long term, it's going to produce a tremendous amount of joy understanding the cross. And um, it would all, all soon be forgotten once they understood what the cross meant. Now, it's interesting in John 20, 20, because after we see Jesus appear to them, in John 20, 20, it says they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. <laughs> so, much like, just like Jesus is always predictable and true, and whatever he prophesies has come true, always comes true, they did rejoice when they saw him. But I was thinking about this. There's an important lesson that I really want us to miss here. You see, if the cross is to be a source of joy for the disciples, then the cross needs to be a source of joy for us as well. And I thought, why don't we just spend some time today talking about why the cross is a source of joy for all Christians? Why is it? And in fact, I only have one lesson today, and that's what it is. But I thought we could review just quickly what last week's sermon was about and look at those three things again to see how it's a source of joy for us. Remember in verse 8, he says, uh, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged. So here's the thing. The cross is a source of joy because it deals with our sin, deals with our unrighteousness, and deals with our needs to be judged. So let's look at them more in detail. The cross, first of all, is the basis by which we are forgiven of our sins. We are to be joyful because this penalty of sin is no longer on us. And you, you know this, but the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned, and we know this from Scripture. And what's really cool is most of us probably quote the New Testament when we think of this. Romans speaks about all of us have fallen short of God's glory. In my Bible readings this week, I actually found two verses that I never saw before. Did you know that the Old Testament preaches that same thing, that the universal of sin of man? Ecclesiastes 7.20, this is Solomon. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good or never sins. That's King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. 1 Kings 8.46, this is Solomon again in his prayer, uh, I think in the dedication of the temple, if I believe him in the context. He says, there is no man that does not sin. So, cool, eh? The, the, the Old Testament actually speaks about the universal sin of man. Yes, we have moments of doing good things, but in the big picture, none of us can say we're sinless. And again, in our culture, we think that our good outweighs our bad, and because of this, we don't have a concept of God's holiness. We don't have a concept of God's holiness in our culture. But God says that penalties for sin is death. Romans 6.23, the penalty for sin is death. I mean, you think about this now. If we say, remember before from last week, if we say we have no sin, we make God to be a liar. We, we, don't, we say that God isn't holy. This is interesting. You know, you guys have studied the tabernacle, and we've done it in our church, and you as a women's group did the tabernacle. Remember this, that there were three parts of the tabernacle. There was the outer court, then there was the inner court, and then there was the holy of holies. Remember, God was teaching the Israelites that he was so holy and their sin was so separated from them 
that none of the Israelites could actually enter the, temp- the, the tabernacle. If there was two million, probably two million is a, a, my estimation of how many Jews were in the wilderness, none of them could enter the outer court. Because God was saying, you can't come in my presence, you've got too much sin. That's what he was teaching them. He says, you have to go through a priest to get to me. So they bring the lamb or their animal and they would sacrifice them at the entrance of the, of the, of the tabernacle and then they would be taught that blood had to cover their sin. That was, that was a, a mental picture he gave them. The priest then could go into the inner court where, where some of the other um, uh, paraphernalia were like, you know, like the, the lamp and, and, and things like that and the incense. But only if they could not enter unless they'd done certain preparations to get into the inner court. So the priest had to wash thoroughly, had to dress a certain way. And if they didn't, they'd be struck dead. But even of the priesthood, only one priest, the high priest, was allowed into the Holy Holies once a year. And if he didn't enter correctly, he'd be killed right on the spot. So God was saying this, where my presence is, where I dwell, I'm so holy that only one out of two million of you is allowed to be in my presence once a year. And he's teaching Israel, like, you are far from me. I'm close to you. I'm leading leading you around the wilderness and protecting you. But don't forget how holy I am. Don't forget that. And this is what Jesus is saying here about dying for our sins. He says, you can't be in the presence of me. You're not holy enough. You've got too much sin in your back. And that's why Jesus had to become sin, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. And as a result of him dying for our sin, that we can even stand before a holy God. So there's joy in the cross, because your sins and my sins have been dealt with. And if Jesus didn't do that, we could never stand in front of a holy God. They required Jesus' blood for us to stand in front of a holy God. How about concerning righteousness? Well, to be righteous, according to God, is to be in right standing with God. You, you would have had to have lived rightly and, and been within your own character righteous and right, uh, lived right enough to be in God's uh, presence. And God taught in the scriptures that only righteous people get to stand in front of a righteous God. But the thing is, because of our sin, we aren't righteous. We're not right. So we have to be made right by God in order to stand in his presence. So again, in terms of wanting to get into the presence of the Lord on our own standards and our own merits, we can't enter before him. We need someone else's righteousness, his righteousness. We have to be made right to stand before a holy God. Since we can't do anything on our own, we have to rely on the merits of Jesus. Because while we're not righteous, he totally was. He never sinned. He was completely holy, totally pure. And I I didn't do a good job in my mind last week of explaining this. But I think I'm doing a better job now when he says this in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Why does he say that? Because, Because he's so righteous, only righteous people get to go to heaven. So when he dies, the first place he goes is straight to glory. He cannot go there first because he is perfectly righteous. When we die, apart from Jesus Christ, we go into the grave and we do not enter heaven. We enter heaven right away when we die as Christians because of the righteousness of Jesus. We grab on his coattails and so when he flies up to heaven, we grab on his coattails and take the journey with him. But that's exactly exactly, um, what Jesus is saying here too. Like, that we have the joy in the cross because we get to enter into glory, not on the righteousness, on our unrighteous acts, but on the righteous merits of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to recognize the cross was necessary 
to make us right before God. And how do we enter into that righteousness? Well, it tells us clearly in Romans 3. And maybe it doesn't. Well, that is very strange. It won't even work. Yeah. My curse is gone. I'll read it to you, though. It says, Romans 3.21, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law. As we promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we, we are made right, or made righteous, with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That's the NLT version. That's good. So yeah, we're made right by faith. Faith, belief that you have a sin that was paid for, Faith that you're not right on your own, that you need a holy God to make you right. And with all this now, we should have joy in the cross because now we don't stand under his judgment. Right? We don't stand under his judgment. The result of sin and unrighteousness is the wrath of God falls on us. And again, we have this whacked idea in our culture that a truly loving God can't be one who punishes sin. We don't even believe that in our own lives. I mean, as a parent, do do you let your kids just run wild with any standard of living that they want and you think it's okay? Of course not. You have this moral, even if it's not a Christian view, you still have within a non-Christian view a moral acceptance of what you think is right and wrong for your children. And you feel it needs to be dealt with. So why the heck would God not have the same standard? I have this idea that love and justice can't exist in the same measure is absolutely ludicrous. People don't even believe it themselves. But that's why a cross is so much a source of joy. Has provided a way for judgment not to fall on us, but on Jesus. Now, there's a word in Scripture, you guys probably know it, propitiation. It's kind of been lost in our church, but it's a really important word. You see, what propitiation means is to satisfy God's anger, to satisfy God's wrath on us. It's a way of appeasing Him. So, again, the reason why judgment doesn't fall on us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ is because God has made Jesus to be a propitiation for us. He's, he's got, Jesus has satisfied God's anger and His wrath that needs to be taken out on us and put it on Him. So when He places the judgment on Christ, we don't have to be judged. And I hear this sometimes, like, well, you know, well, your God's kind of like schizophrenic because in the Old Testament He's so wrathful and needs justice all the time, but in the New Testament He's not. I would suggest that actually he's exactly the same in character. The difference is in the Old Testament, all his wrath and judgment fell on the people when they disobeyed. But because of Jesus Christ, it all fell on him. So you think of all the justice that God took out in the Old Testament, that would fell on one man, one God, Jesus Christ, on one occasion. And that's why, we, that's why he doesn't have to like, take out the vengeance in the world he does now, because he took it all out in the sun. That's how important the cross is. And we can have pure joy knowing that we don't stand under his judgment because of that one act on Christ's part. So I hope you can see why this, the cross is a source of joy for us. In this lifetime, it means that we know that we're right with God. As we live today, I mean, I can walk and you can walk in peace through this community, knowing that no matter what happens to you, you're right with God. Therefore, death is not as a scary a thing because you have another home waiting for you. There's a more to life than the here and now. And there's assurance and hope. And about two weeks ago, I got a real glimpse into the, how much difference 
a proper understanding of the cross makes for someone like myself versus other people in the community. I was sitting across the table from a woman who um, was sharing with me some of her uh, uh, pains in life, and she's not part of this church. I hope she will be one day. But she was uh, sharing with me all these things, and I was listening to her over a course of time, and I, I, was, I was thinking, what is really the source of anxiety for her, and what's the source of uh, uh, despair? And I had made assumptions about what it all was, and, and a lot of them were, you know, were true in many ways. But I, so I thought, why don't I ask her a question? I think maybe the Spirit of God gave me this question because it wasn't in my head before. I said to her, um, "Can I ask you something?" I said, uh, um, "If you could ask God any question, and you could have any question in your life as you sit today answered, what would it be?" And she said to me, "I just want to know where I'm going to go when I die." I want to know what happens after this lifetime. And I was like, oh man, I'm so glad I asked the question because like she said, and she said like, I'm actually so afraid of that answer. I don't even think about it often. Cause if I do, I get so anxious and so crazy. I can't even like stand like my own mind. And she goes, I just like put myself in a total frenzy and I can't handle the emotions of it all. And I said, and I was like, oh, this is so awesome. I said to her, I said, oh, you know what? As we talk more and more and we get together, I will tell you exactly how to have assurance and to know what's going to happen when you die. So I'm just praying for the opportunity now to give her the gospel over and over and over to answer her biggest fear. But you see the difference of the cross? See, I don't know. I mean, do I fear death? little bit. I mean, nobody wants to face how they're going to die. Like, if it might hurt, you know, you, you worry about suffering a little bit if you have to go through cancer or Alzheimer's or whatever. You worry about those things. We all do. But in the big picture, like, we, we shouldn't. Because we have the joy knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we've been made right by God, and judgment doesn't fall on us. This woman is going through life absolutely terrified because she has no cross to take care of her deepest needs. And I, got, I was so grateful to God for giving me a glimpse into how much confidence and assurance the cross of Christ can give someone who's a Christian. Again, because her joy is based on circumstances. And my joy and your joy is based on a relationship and the truth of the gospel. Her joy is all circumstantially driven. And our joy is not based on circumstances, but the fact that we know that we know where we go when we die. We know where we go. And I want to conclude with uh, one verse, uh, one, one passage. And I, I want to show you how the, the, the Old Testament saints had a, an eternal perspective. For, and, and un, even though they didn't know what the cross was yet, they did believe in the Redeemer to come and that God was going to take care of their sin in one way. But just all, all of you turn to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll finish with this. Verse 8, 11, 8. Okay, we're at the last page turn. So I think we're there. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed a, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now watch this. For he was looking for the city which has 
foundations whose architect and builder is God. So it's a future belief that God is going to provide him a city in which he is the builder. Now at that point, you may think, well, that's not necessarily speaking of a heavenly home, that's speaking of maybe an earthly home. We'll go to verse um, 13. All these died in faith, speaking about the Old Testament uh, heroes, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have, been op- they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So in verse 10, when, when, when the writer of Hebrews is speaking about Abraham's faith, he talks about, you know, he's got the land of Canaan and so on and so forth. All, uh, Abraham's ultimate thought process was, well, yeah, this is a cool home and everything, and I appreciate the promise, but ultimately I'm looking by faith to the eventual eternal home that I'm going to, in which God's preparing for me. And it's a heavenly kingdom. You see, the source of joy for Abraham was knowing that there was more to this life and that heaven was his eventual home. And for him, that was joy. And I guarantee you, if Abraham knew about the cross of Christ, he would have been all in. He would have been all in. Because even without the knowledge of the cross of Christ, he was still living as an Old Testament believer the way God wants us to live in his New Testament. The difference is we have the big picture and he didn't. But our faith looks the same. We're, we're thinking of an eternal home. And I'm hoping, again, for if you, if you are in a situation right now where you're, you're not joyful, you don't have peace because of the circumstances you face, hopefully this message will be an encouragement to give you an eternal perspective to make your joy complete in the relationship with Jesus Christ because of what he accomplished.